Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, where we bring you weekly conversations with purpose-driven leaders. Our focus is to share meaningful conversations with purpose-driven people having a big social impact in our community. Our mission is to enable you to listen, connect, and grow. You can learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au. We try to provide girls with the tools and knowledge they need to succeed in the classroom, but also outside of it. So one of the programs we run is scholarships, and that is very simply paying for school fees, school books, school uniforms, a solar lamp so people could study at night, just everything they need to get into that classroom. And that's great. And that's super important because sometimes those that poverty barrier is that's it. That's all girls need is that helping hand to get into the classroom. Welcome back to another week of Humans of Purpose, and it is great to have you with us as always. Well, those were the wise words of Sarah Ireland, who is the CEO at One Girl. One Girl are doing some incredible work globally to help girls receive an education, and they believe that when you educate a girl, she can change her world. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Sarah. I've been looking forward to it for some time and also hearing more about One Girl and their model. You'll learn a bit in this episode about Sarah's um, fascinating history in the world of international development, journalism, and living in some of the most challenging places on our planet. Uh, You'll hear about her first-hand experiences um, facing a lot of these global problems that she's now uh, CEO of of an organization well-equipped to tackle. And you'll hear a lot about the impact model of one girl and why it's so important to invest in girls' education as a means to solving a raft of other global and social problems. So definitely stick around to the end as she drops some really uh, interesting advice towards the end of the episode. I want to extend a big welcome to our new sponsors, Assemble, who are bridging that challenging gap between renting and owning your own home. You can live in your home and community before choosing to buy. You'll have five years during the lease to save with the help of Assemble's financial coaching and bulk buying initiatives. Assemble deliver projects where good design, community, and sustainability go hand in hand. Head to assemblecommunities.com to learn more. As always, I want to send a special thank you and shout out to our, our Patreon supporters, Misha D and wife, Joel F, Stuart M and McCartan. Your ongoing support uh, each month has been tremendous for Humans of Purpose and helps us grow and perform each and every week. If you're enjoying the content that we're putting out there each and every week, we'd love you to consider joining as a Patreon supporter, which is a small gesture that makes a really big difference for the podcast. Just head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose where you can sign up and you'll also see a range of benefits available that are exclusive to our Patreon supporter community. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Well, it's my pleasure to host you. We've been chatting for a couple of weeks about making this happen and I'm so glad we could get it done on a cold Melbourne winter's night. I know there was a bit of flu and colds and stuff that delayed us, so I'm glad I'm glad I'm here. Such is the usual Melbourne uh, arrangement, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but I'm glad you're looking healthy and well now. I am. I would love, and I'll tell you my intro story to one girl soon. But before I do that, we'd love to hear a bit about your journey into the space um, and to becoming the CEO of One Girl in your own time and flow. <laughs> Great. I have been in the kind of the aid, international development, humanitarian sector for. About, I think, 11 years. So I trained as a journalist um, up in Brisbane and worked at the ABC for a while while I was doing a Master's of International Studies. And I always had this idea or passion or drive to work in kind of the international space. But definitely at that time, sort of the early 2000s, I didn't really know what my opportunity, like my, my options were. Um, you know, becoming an aid worker was something you maybe did as a volunteer or only did if you, you know, got a job at the UN. There was nothing else, especially at that time in Australia, and there definitely weren't a lot of, you know, development masters or the like as there are now. And so I wanted to be a foreign correspondent, you know, drawing on my journalism. And well, I love I, that show. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I, um, like, you know, many, many Australians before me, I went and did a working holiday visa in London. And it was there that I kind of came across the sector. Um, and it was much more established over in the UK. And I actually got a job really randomly with an organization that as part of what they did, they were a media company, but they put on an event for the aid sector, Mm. which was part trade show where, you know, people that had 
tents that could be used in refugee camps or, you know, for-profit companies um, would set up stalls. But one of the ways we got people to come were we, you know, from the aid sector who would buy them, buy the goods, was we had a series of workshops and Q&As and panel discussions and keynote speakers who were really senior in the aid sector. And that's where I kind of got exposed to it and thought, this is this is it. This is really what I want to do. What, um, a, what a great way to sort of get it, to get that learning or understanding of the space. Yeah, it was wonderful. And I, because I was on the organising team, um, organising the event, but also my role was in more of the PR marketing space. I got to talk to a lot of the panellists and these people who were really quite senior in both UN and um, uh, like the not-for-profits. And so it was, a, it was great exposure. So, so you're a networker from way back is what you're telling me. Oh, I was very shy and nervous, so I don't know how good I was. But you were, you were thrust into a position of um, connecting people up and, you know, helping to maybe tell your story a bit and also tell their story. I was, and it was it was nice because I one of the things I did was put out a, a little magazine um, for to kind of promote the event, but it was reaching out to – you know, at the time, the CEO of Save the Children UK, which is an enormous organization that had, you know, a thousand staff. And so, you know, actually speaking to her, hearing from her, learning her story gave me that insight. And yeah, so then they had Save the Children actually had a volunteer position. And I, I mean, this is a bit of a theme for my early years in the sector, but um, it was a volunteer logistician. And I spoke to the people who were advertising it and I was like, you know, this is it. I want to do it. This is my foot in the door. I'll take the volunteer position. At the risk of uh, revealing my ignorance so early in the podcast, logistician? Well, so this is the thing. (laughs) I I ended up advertising. uh, I went and got the the job, did the job interview, Googled. What is a logistician? Perfect. Yeah, Perfect. I'm feeling comfortable. Yeah, I had no idea. Um, I mean, it, it is the person that tries to get goods from A to B. And in the role that I was in, it was in a, the humanitarian team. So in an emergency response, um, sourcing kind of often life-saving items and getting them to the people who need them. But I had no idea. Um, and I was in that role for a month. And a huge cyclone hit Myanmar in Asia, um, Cyclone Nargis in 2008, killing, you know, a couple of hundred thousand people, impacting millions more. And I was part of the team that went out and responded. Wow. And it was just this, I mean, life-changing experience for me. I ended up being there for eight months. But it was just this really fascinating experience of being incredibly – in many ways, naive, incredibly yeah. inexperienced. I'd never travelled to Asia before. I had only been in the, the you know in that job in the sector mm. for a month, and but one of the things I kind of you know talked to myself about was I would just take the opportunities and I would, but being really clear um, to myself that I would ask questions. I would you know put my hand up. Um, when I didn't know something, but always really try to be solution focused as well. So, um, and just be basically a sponge and learn as much as I could. And I was really lucky that I was surrounded by people who realized that and were willing to support me. So even people who were my peers and only a couple of years older than myself or had a few more years experience really took the time to kind of explain things to me. Do you think people like sponges? Like how do they take them generally? Do you have to declare you're a sponge or the the secret is um, just being a covert sponge? I I don't know. I think I'm probably not so covert. I think I ask too many questions (laughs) to let it slide under the radar. Um, but I think the difference was I wasn't just always just asking questions and taking, I was trying to give back so as well. might also be, you know, relevance, asking questions so that you can be better in how you're helping. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think people saw my enthusiasm, you know, I was, um, I think I was 25 at the time. So saw that enthusiasm and that real passion and just wanting to be better at what I was doing. And especially in emergency situations and especially when you're on that logistics team, it really is life-saving in that we were, you know, doing food distributions. We were getting essential items to people who needed it because they had nothing. And you need to be, you need to be able to get it to them as quickly as possible mm. because they're really relying on it. And, you know, vaccinating kids or 
um, making sure people have shelter because the cyclone's been, but it's still raining every single night and afternoon. So it's, you know, people want to help, I think, because they want you to be good at their job because it's a whole team effort. No one person can can do that. For sure. Um, Must be like a very humbling experience. And I mean, I wonder how doing something like that so early in your career has shaped about how you thought about later opportunities. I think, yeah, I think it really has. One of the, I mean, you mentioned kind of humbling experience. One of the things I really took away from it, and there's been a couple of times throughout my career that I think this has been the thing of the experience that stayed with me and made me reflect so much is the um, the local population. And I remember right from that early experience, just looking around at the people who just, you know, nearly every family had lost a member of their family and unfortunately, in many of the cases in um, in Cyclone Nargis, a lot of the people who had been killed by the cyclone were the women in the family um, because either they weren't strong enough to, you know, hold on to a tree, um, you know, when the, way, the water was sweeping through or mm. for women are very often the most affected mm. in emergencies. And, you know, so listening to their stories, a lot of what I did was working with children, but seeing the resilience, seeing the fact that, um, international staff like myself come in and we help and support and we bring in goods that aren't there otherwise, but their local population are the first responders. Yeah. They're the ones that are there before we get there and they'll be there afterwards. Mm. And so many of the staff were people from that community. And, and this is a big thing that I really remember of um, later in my career when I was in Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, which was probably the biggest emergency response that I was part of is that I had a team that would come to work every single day, would work so many hours and so hard in really challenging situations. And then they would go home to a family that had been torn apart mm. by this disaster to a house that may not have a roof because it's been ripped off in the typhoon or the cyclone that, you know, they didn't have enough food to eat. And yet, they come back every morning and they do the same thing mm. because they want to they want to help they want to give back to their community and they want to be part of that effort and that i think is the thing that stuck with me most in my career that's interesting so is it at that point that you kind of um are very wedded and committed to the idea of a career in humanitarian sector and that kind of space yeah i think that was a really pivotal point for me i think maybe if i had I mean, I, I love the work and I love what we do. I think um, my career probably would have gone in a bit of a different direction if I hadn't had that as my first real kind of experience. It's like a sliding doors moment. Yeah, it really was. And I, um, it made me uh, really want to do more humanitarian work, um, you know, more sort of that first phase emergency relief, which is where I spent – the next few years of my career kind of um, either doing that emergency relief or working in places where it had that humanitarian element to it, but it was a longer-term focus. Mm. So I worked in Syria before the conflict and then in Uganda, um, both of which were really challenging kind of um, situations which had a lot of that emergency component to it. But I was there for a longer period of time and I was managing offices and people and seeing whole cycles through rather than sort of jetting in and jetting out again a couple of months later. And that that really, I guess, rounded my experience. Mm. So the next time I went to an emergency response, I think I just had so much more experience to back up and not just in that fly in for three months, fly out, but I knew what would happen after I leave. And so it did make me better at that job. How do you, what's it like leaving a place of that heightened emotion and conflict and kind of lo local community or, you know, after you've stayed there for a while, you've been a big part of helping. What do you kind of yearn to return home or do you kind of get hooked on the place and you want to stay? It's, it's really mixed emotions. Um, often I yearn to return home because I'm just burnt out. Um, you know, I mentioned Typhoon Haiyan before that was yeah in the Philippines in 2013. And it was such a challenging environment with just the level of destruction, the amount of work, the living conditions. When we first went in, we had no clean water. We had to take all our own food in. We had no electricity. So literally for the first couple of days eating cold Maggi noodles. Oh, my God. <laughs> Nothing else because we only had cold water to put on it, which is not a complaint because there were people in much worse situations than I. But just to give an it, Still probably a sacrifice that 99% of the population wouldn't want to make. <laughs> yeah, and that, I mean, that takes it out of you. Yeah. Um, it's especially when I was I was managing the response at that local level. I had a lot of staff. I had a lot of responsibilities. Um, by the time I went home, sort of two months later, I was I was I needed 
to go home. Um, but you don't stop thinking about it. You don't stop thinking about the people. Um, I was lucky enough in that um, one to go back a year later and reconnect um, with everybody and a lot of the team was still there and that was really special. Awesome. Um, but one of the things it does do is uh, because it is such uh, – it's almost like being a bit of an adrenaline junkie in that, you know, it's you might leave that one but it's what's the next response It, it does be? and that's probably why I asked the question. I sort of feel like it is a bit um, – I can imagine – I can imagine it being very adrenally addictive, if you know what I mean. Like sort of you're, you're regulating yourself based on such a high octane environment, mm. and then you know Melbourne can be sedentary and pretty pretty you know chill, and especially the dead of winter. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of it's a stark contrast to Syria, um, post conflict, pre conflict, or Uganda. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a period um, when I was working in Melbourne for Save the Children, and I was on their emergency team, and. I, in the span of two and a half years, I probably responded to eight emergencies, you know, from Iraq with the refugee response to, I think I did five in, emergencies in the Philippines, one in Myanmar. So that, um, you know, it, it, it is difficult in a way to come back um, to somewhere like Melbourne. And on one hand, it's wonderful because I get to reconnect with my friends. I get to chill out. I get to have a bit more of a normal life. But there is that, you know, when when am I going again? Yeah. Cause it is different. But for me, that was a part of my life that was wonderful. Yeah. And I was, you know, in a, in a, in a part of my life where I could do that. I could get on a plane the next day. Um, and while I miss it now, I'm, I don't feel the need to go and do it again yeah, sure. right now. So it was, it was, you know, a real experience. And I got to, as I was saying before, you know, meet, I feel really privileged that I got to work alongside both, you know, international staff like me, but also staff from those local communities or from that country. Um, and that I, I really look back at that as a privilege to be able to have those experiences. Absolutely. And and so after these experiences, talk talk to me about the link with, with One Girl and your, your drive to, to be part of that organisation. Yeah. So, I mean, after I did a lot of those emergencies, I actually moved from that more operational um leading emergency responses role to advocacy and policy. Sure. So still in the humanitarian sector, but it was actually when I was in Iraq um, and I was uh, starting Save the Children's um, Syria refugee response. So in Iraq, we had, or well, Save the Children already had quite big responses in Lebanon and Jordan, but there were increasing numbers of refugees coming into Iraq. And it was when I was there that I really came up against um, that that advocacy and that real need to be a strong advocate but based in international law um, because of the type of mm. response that it was. And I, I really loved that exposure. So I actually started a Masters of um, International Law in um, focusing on international human rights law and humanitarian law. And then I, I moved into advocacy and policy. And I did that job for a couple of years. I also had a baby and moved. I was living in Lebanon at the time and moved back to Australia. And then I was um, kind of looking at other jobs and I saw the one girl job being advertised. And to me, being CEO, it was just seemed like such a great combination of my operational experience, my international experience and my advocacy and policy and that influencing experience and bringing that all together. I think it's, it just sounds like it is the perfect combination, close enough to be in the blades of grass and notice the detail, but high enough in the clouds to, to sort of see how it unfolds on the ground. Yeah, and that's kind of like the job in general, I guess. But the the girls' education component, I, you know, I've worked in a lot of countries around the world and a lot of both, you know, um, disaster zones, but also more longer term kind of like development work. And education is key. Yeah. Education I've seen right from, you know, at a disaster hits, getting schools back up and running simply for a safe place for children. Yeah. Um, to go while things around them are being rebuilt, but also to get them back into learning yeah, as soon I feel as possible. Like part of that life routine as well that revolves around sort of self-discipline, betterment, a safe space. Like um, without that routine, what, what, a kid, what do kids have to do all day? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they fall, um, you know, more susceptible to child trafficking or other forms of child mm. abuse. And 
It, and it's also the longer kids stay out of school, the less likely they are to go back in. Yes. And so it's making sure we don't lose that whole, you know, generation or years of kids in that schooling environment and being able to get the skills they need to be able to, you know, have a future where they can get jobs or contribute, um, you know, to the economy or to the country or whatever it is. It's you need to make sure that they have those opportunities. So was it like a moment where things just clicked for you when you saw one girl, you saw the CEO role and you just thought, this makes total sense to me. I've seen this in the field and from my research and this is what I want to do. Yes, it was. What I actually didn't apply until the very night before it was due. Ooh, and I saw, <laughs> I saw it being advertised for a while and, you know, this looks wonderful. This looks great. I, you know, typical me, I went onto their website. I looked at their financials. I looked at their annual report. Classic. I would have done the exact same thing. Yeah. But I was like, oh, as if I'm a CEO, as if I'm, you know, a CEO isn't a, you know, 30 something year old, you know, woman. Um, well, you talk I, about molds a bit, so that's interesting. And I'd love mm. to hear your perspective on that because I, I um, never looked at you and thought, this is not a CEO. Um, when I spoke to you, I thought, this is a CEO. Like I was sure <laughs> once I, I talked to you. I think it's just that um, in our minds, you, you know, because of what we're brought up with or what we see, I didn't seem to fit in my mind. I didn't fit the mold of a CEO. A CEO is more of a middle-aged man. Likely to be called John or Terry or Ralph. Exactly. And I, I mean, I talk to a lot of people about this, particularly younger women, and I just say, apply, just apply. If, you, they, if you're not suitable, you won't get a job. You're like, you won't get the interview, so, so but you have to put your hand. Men, you know, innately believe that they can do everything. Women yep. innately tell themselves their self-talk, you probably aren't up to this. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's so many studies on this yeah. that if a, you know, a guy sees a job application and they tick, you know, half the number of, you know, essential criteria mm. that apply or, you know, don't quote me on that number, but something like that, you know. Um, but if a woman looks at it and ticks nine out of 10, she probably won't. So again, don't quote me on those figures, but no I mean, quote you on these figures. I was me. very conversational, no fact, <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, you know, I fell right into that trap and I look back on it and just shake my head at myself mm. because it, it, ha it's the best job I've ever had. But you, you almost fell into the trap, but you didn't, you caught yourself and you still applied obviously. Yeah, I yeah. did. And I, the other thing that really attracted me to the role, um, which I still really love about it is that it's a small organization. A lot of my other jobs have been for big organizations and big global organizations. And they have their great, like the great points to them in that, you know, with a big organization comes the might of that organization. Sure, but the, it the also, big game, yeah, reputation and money and resources. Ability to and, move big international advocacy efforts. Absolutely. Yeah. But they're also like these big old, like, you know, oil tankers. And for them to kind of move, it takes, you know, this slow sort of turnaround where I look at one girl as being this little speedboat in that, you know, we can be nimble and agile and everybody in the organization can have an idea and we talk about it and we may do it. You know, it's not that you're sitting in one department and even if, you know, you're in a programs team and you've got a communications idea. That's never going to happen because so, it's so the um, the gap between sort of ideation and implementation is small. It is, and I really love that, and I love our niche focus that we do girls education. We focus on adolescent girls and young women, and it's all about education. And the beauty about education is that. Our programs aren't just getting a girl an education. It's looking at all those different barriers that girls face. Um, so there's actually quite a breadth to what we do, mm. but that mission is so clear. It's tightly encapsulated. And I, I think what's interesting is that um, you go narrow and deep into a big issue mm. rather than spreading yourself very thin across a range of simpler issues, multifactorial issues. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you can really see the impact on what you do. And, you know, you talk to our, you know, programs team, um, you know, there's two of them sitting in Melbourne, <laughs> so it's not this huge team, but they can tell you the names of the girls. And, you know, we've got a lot of girls in our programs, but that's, there's that personal connection because they've been there, they've met them, mm. they've, they've got that relationship. And, and I think that's the other thing that's so special about One Girl. It's a really personal organization and we, you know, things to us, P girls who are part of our program are, aren't just 
a number or a name on a spreadsheet. They're real people and we try to make sure they have a voice in our programs. So we'll ask you about the programs in a sec, but the, the branding of One Girl and the message is very strong and very clear. That's what I like. So when I first, I'll tell a little personal <laughs> intro as I promised uh, about how I came to know One Girl. Um, when I started Purposeful many years ago and still no one in my family or my wife knew what it was or why I was doing it, um, I somehow got the opportunity to speak to RMIT's um, International Students Youth Forum. And it was one of two talks. I didn't know this, but the other talk was one girl and Morgan, your, your former um, yeah. leader there, um, speaking. And I just remember her talk was um, – like my talk was very much like a PowerPoint consultant talk and um, I got some laughs here or there. I wasn't bad, but hers was a full TED talk and I was like welling up with emotion. I had to follow her. I was like, I can't do this. This, this is <laughs> like, it's so clear what one girl does. Mm. What is purposeful doing? So, you know, many years later um, we're connected and I just sort of, I still have that, um, that image or that prescient feeling of what the organization is about at heart. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things we, we really make sure that we do in everything that we do is we talk so everybody gets what we do. It's we're not talking to development professionals or people who, you know, you have to have a master's mm. in this topic to mm. understand it. Even though you do, which is helpful. It, it is helpful. <laughs> but, but you know, we, we do – I was actually reading um, today a draft report. We've, we did um, an evaluation of one of our programs earlier this year and we've put it into a report that we're going to release publicly um that's awesome. in august yeah it's Congrats on, on doing that thank you thank you it's a really exciting piece of work actually but you know there's parts of the report where it's laugh out loud that there's puns there's really yeah oh my it's God. I'm and definitely gonna read that it's really great and we did one last year on our scholarships program and it's the same thing and it should be fun to read it should, it be should fun. convey the message it should show the impact of our programs and all of that but everybody from you know a 13-year-old girl to, you know, a 50-year-old development professional who's done this for 40 years, like 30 years. They they should both be able to understand what we're doing. For sure. And that that's really important to us. Yeah. So do you do, you, um, do a lot of work in the organisation with your team on sort of storytelling and um, branding and just sort of being clear about what the mission is? Yeah. So one of the, I mean, I'm kind of really lucky in my role as a CEO in that before I started, there was... Um, uh, quite a lot of people who left the organization. I think it was just a lot of people had been there since the organization had started almost um, just that time of the organization. So I, one of my first jobs as CEO was to recruit pretty much most of the team, um, which, you know, that institutional knowledge um, issue, we kind of were lucky enough that we'd kept a few people to retain that knowledge. But it also meant that we could start with um, like really looking at the culture and the values and the mission. And so one of the things we did when we got this new team on board, we co-designed values and we co-designed the mission statement. And that has been wonderful because it's really brought us together as a team and meant that it's not one person sort of saying what the values are on the mission statement or people coming in and saying, well, people, you know, years ago designed this. Yeah, it's really worst. owned by everybody, like which is amazing. Co-design and the, that link to ownership and they'll remember it as well. Like yeah. I'm sure every person in your team can say what the purpose or mission of the organisation is. Yeah, and yeah. I, that's, you know, and, and the values, I mean, we talk about the values all the time. It's a real core part of what we do. We've kind of put it throughout the organisation from performance reviews mm. to talking about them um, where they've actually been lived in every team meeting. It's a really nice part of who we are. We're very values driven as an organization. Do you focus much on behaviors as well? We do, but behaviors that kind of feed into those values. Mm. Um, that's that's because that the values drive sure. who we are and it drives the way we've designed them is it drives how we behave and what we do here um, but it also is what we do in our programs as well. So they kind of are able to be cut across, but they also um, help us with our branding and our messaging. So one of our values is positivity because we really believe in that positive language and showing the impact. So if you, I've never heard of that as a value. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's, really, it's really great actually. Um, it's unique. It is. Yeah. And I mean, that's who we are as yeah. an organization. We don't try to be anything but us. Mm. 
And we, I mean, with the, the positive side, it's we, you know, if you look at our website, you look at any of our, you know, Instagram, Facebook posts, it's always showing the positive impact of girls' education and a girl or a young woman from our programs or here in Australia talking about what education has enabled them to do and how it's changed their life and the impact. And that's something that we make, I think, sets us apart from a lot of other agencies. We don't look at the situation for those girls beforehand. So you're not focusing so much on the crisis and the, the sort of no, trying that, to compel action and donating and all that kind of jazz? No. And, you know, there's plenty of studies to show, you know, how that works in fundraising, but that's that goes against who we are as an organisation. Mm. And it's really important to us to look at, you know, encapsulated within that is the language that we use. So we don't use the word vulnerable when referring to the girls or the young women. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's those things that looking at our values and what falls out of those values that um, feed into how we talk, how we tell stories. Well, that's a great example of um, how values translated to a behavioral, like mm. a behavioral norm. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a really nice, um, it's nice to be part of an organization when you have some tricky situations that you need to make decisions on and you can really come back to those values. I wanted to ask you just if we could go back a few steps and maybe talk a little bit about why if someone was thinking about um, how to lift communities out of poverty or disadvantage or whatever term you use, why would one choose maybe or make the case strongly that investing in um, girls' education is the way to go? Sure. It's, you know, sometimes it's hard, um, you know, sometimes it can be hard to make that connection because also education is an investment and it's a long-term investment and you're not going to see the the impact of that straight away in many ways. In some ways you do, which is amazing, but education, you know, we, one of the things I like to say all the time, it seems is it is the key to changing the world and to making the world a better place that, you know, reducing poverty, um, tackling gender inequalities, making the world, you know, more sustainable, tackling preventable deaths and illnesses, you know, they're kind of big general <laughs> claims, but it kind of ticks all those boxes because what it is doing, it is giving people the tools and the knowledge they need to be able to succeed. And so what we do is we try to provide girls with the tools and knowledge they need to succeed in the classroom, but also outside of it. So one of the programs we run is scholarships, and that is very simply paying for school fees, school books, school uniforms, a solar lamp so people could study at night, just everything they need to get into that classroom. And that's great. And that's super important because sometimes those, that poverty barrier is that's it. That's all girls need is that helping hand to get into the classroom. But that's not just it in so many cases. So girls have other barriers. So it is are they going to schools where there are functioning toilets? So when they want to go to the toilet, they can go to a toilet that locks, that flushes, that when they leave um, that toilet, they can wash their hands with soap, less likely to catch diseases. Because if they can't go to a functioning toilet, maybe every time they need to go to the toilet, they go home. Mm. Or if they have their period, maybe they just go home or stay home that whole time. And something simple as a period to us will mean that a girl will fall further and further behind her male um, peers at school and maybe just drop out. So helping the girls get the knowledge they need on how to manage their hygiene when they have their period, mm -hmm. but also the tools they need. And again, sometimes when I even say that, it sounds simple because I grew up with a mum who spoke to me about, you know, one day you're going to get your period, this is all you need to do. And you know, as embarrassing as that was for, you know, young Sarah, mm. it's, you know, it, it made it okay when it happened. But for many of the girls we work with, their mums have never spoken to them about it because maybe their mums don't know. Or, you know, they're in an environment where the taboos around periods are so much that they can't wash whatever piece of fabric they're using while they have their period, which means it doesn't get washed properly and they catch infections or diseases next time they've got their period. Things like that, things like sexual reproductive health and rights. If they don't know their rights, other community members don't know their rights or where to go to access sexual health um, medical services, then maybe, you know, we're going to have more teen pregnancies mm. or sexually transmitted illnesses that are going to stop girls from going to school. Um, 
if girls don't want to go to school. Maybe they would prefer to do a vocational study um, or vocational qualification, but who's teaching them about financial literacy or how to run a business Mm. or giving them a small loan to start a business and supporting them along the way. So looking at all these different barriers that girls face, because we know that education, if a girl finishes high school, both she is more likely to send her daughter to school or her son to school, her children. And her children are more likely to live past the age of five. So they're going to be healthier because she has more knowledge on how to make them uh, make sure they're healthier and what services there are to keep them healthier. For every year that a girl stays in school, she will earn between 10 to 25% more income. And that means that she will contribute to her community, to the economy, to the country. The most amazing thing about that statistic that I find is that around 90% of that income will be reinvested back into her family mm. and back into her community. Mm. And so we we're seeing that reinvestment. Very different to what a man usually does with income. Yeah. So it's amazing to look at what that woman does when she has that money and when she mm. has those choices. Um If we educated girls, we're less likely to see child marriage and women who are educated tend to have fewer children. And this is a really interesting point that, you know, it's not whether we should or shouldn't have more children. It's that they tend to do it because they have more control over their own, um, their own body and they have more control over when they have children. Mm -hmm. So they choose, again, we're looking at um, women getting married or girls getting married later but also having fewer children. And that has a really amazing link to climate change because that means that we're having fewer children being born, fewer, um, you know, more, I guess, um, less uh, pull on natural resources because we're not seeing this increase in the population size. And which is amazing to think that there's a link between educating girls and climate change. And it's actually, there was a a book a little while ago um, that was put out called The Drawdown by Paul Hawken. And what he and his team of researchers and academics did was they looked at all the things that we could do and the impact that would have on climate change through the reduction in CO2 emissions. So hopefully I'm not getting, you know, (laughs) making sense. No, no, it's still, it's not too technical. I still understand. (laughs) I'm like the litmus test for this podcast. I I still get it. Please continue. (laughs) Um, But when you combine... Girls' education and family planning, which is kind of what I was just saying. So girls' education and empowerment, basically, it is the number one thing we can do to fight climate change. And that's just, to me, that's just mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. Um, I think some of, a number of the links you've drawn are intuitive, that makes sense, but they're also like I would never have thought of that. So maybe like, you know, more advocacy around that kind of stuff would be a really exciting frontier. Do you do much around that currently? We do um, as much as we can. We're a small organization. Sure. So um, we we do, but our reach. Yeah, I suppose you also is, don't want to get lost in messages around like being seen as a climate change organization because there's heaps of other people doing that as well. So yeah. you know, maybe focus more on your turf and issue. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of the things that we've been talking about a lot lately, that link between climate change and girls' education because yeah. we see that value in you know people who are really passionate about climate change. Um, that if we can talk to them about this, then maybe they'll also be passionate about girls' education because there really is that that link. So it's something that we talk about a lot, and we've just um, done a bit of work with the producers of the new film Twenty Forty, mm-hmm. and Damon, who was the producer and was actually in the film. He is putting on a school dress um, for our campaign called Do It in a Dress, um, it. which is amazing. It's a, a fundraising campaign we do every year, which is just super fun and positive. But basically, you put on a school dress, you choose a challenge. Some people you know, jump out of planes or mm-hmm. go snowboarding or surfing. Some people wear it to work or do a bake sale. So whatever it is that fits into your life. And you do this to raise money from friends and family. But the really important thing and the amazing thing about the campaign is you're wearing this school dress, this really visible reminder um, that you believe that every girl everywhere around the world should be able to put on a school dress and go to school. And we've spoken a lot about this to the girls who are in our programs overseas. And because we, uh, you know, talking to them about what does it mean to them to put on a school dress 
And so many of them have said to us that just the very act of putting that school dress on and going and walking to school just fills them with confidence. And it means that, you know, they can hold their head up high. They feel more confident to talk to other members of their Mm. community and be a leader in their community, just that act of putting on a school dress. And that's pretty remarkable. It makes a lot of sense. Do you think or have you done much um, thinking or work around how all of this, um, the lifting up of women and giving them the opportunity to go to school and study and have an education, how that affects like male attitudes and that sort of influences a lot of things around change and sort of, you know, women having more respect in the household and, you know, um, bringing us towards a more equal society? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a really hard one. Um, We still get, you know, when we, when we, um, I guess to look at that for a few different ways. So we work in Uganda and Sierra Leone and we, in Uganda, we um, work completely through a partner organization who is um, a female led organization from Uganda. In Sierra Leone, we have some of our own staff um, as well as some partner organizations, but all of our staff um, apart from one are from Sierra Leone and the one who isn't is from Malawi. So, you know, a similar country elsewhere in Africa. And the the really important thing for us is being very community led. Um, and what that means is that we are working in those communities. We're working within the the culture with um, alongside them. So rather than us and coming in and saying, "Well, actually, this is what you should be doing," and that makes a huge difference. Um, and we, you know, we 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 definitely come up against, you know, why isn't there a one boy in this community, or why aren't there clubs for boys well, that's here? Just stupid. Sorry. <laughs> That's dumb. But, you know, when, when you're looking at disadvantage yeah. in, a, in a whole kind of community yeah. level. Yeah. Um, but for us, it's bringing everybody along and showing them the benefits to everybody mm. for educating girls, but also having the girls lead that change themselves. Yeah. And that's really key for us is that the girls themselves are leading this change and we're, we're supporting them and we're providing them with the tools that they need. So a lot of our programs – Aside from the hard skills I mentioned earlier, like, you know, financial literacy training or something like that, we do a lot of training on leadership, confidence building, decision making, and we facilitate discussions that girls can have with those traditional community elders to start talking about these challenges that they face. And in things like one of our, you know, our menstrual hygiene program, looking at, you know, periods and hygiene is that, you know, making sure men in the communities, brothers and fathers and male teachers and elders know what it means when a girl gets their period and what they need to do when they have their period. And we've seen some remarkable changes, you know, men who previously had no idea what it was or refused to talk about it because of the taboos Mm. are now going to the store and buying pads for their daughters. So that was going to sort of lead me to my question. I mean, men are clearly um, a big part of a lot of these problems, Mm. but, um, and it sounds like, you know, women are leading the charge in your team, um, globally, but do you also have like sympathetic um, men who are helpful there sort of to consult with as well, who can be part of that solution? And Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of our, one of our staff in, in Sierra Leone is male. Um, and, you know, he, he's great in that in one of his, his main, main role is at that community mm. level. And it's great because he is able to talk to the male elders in the community. Our, you know, um, Africa regional director is female. So we've kind of got this nice balance, but it's important to us that we're bringing the entire community along. Oh, and for sure. It's- the only reason I ask is because I think um, there, there is something about trying to understand um, male psyche and motivations mm. in a space where they're a big part of the problem. Yeah. So like, it's sort of like, you know, just you just want one on the team to kind of, you know, help understand it a bit better maybe or give that different perspective. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's really important. And yeah. that's, you know, Emmanuel in Sierra Leone is such an integral part of the mm. team because he does provide that different perspective, you know, and he was brought up in this culture as well. And so what does it mean to be a male in a country like Sierra yeah. Leone and how to be an advocate for those girls but also be able to talk to the, you know, very traditional male yeah. elders yeah. in that's those right. communities? That's right, and like maybe how to have those um, – conversations without confrontation or, mm. you know, pushing any pressure points or trigger points that would upset anyone and, you know, end the conversation. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it is, 
it is amazing to see we've had, um, you know, we sort of speak to the girls who a big part of the girls in the program, um, a big part of what they say is so important to them is that pay it forward. So the knowledge that they've gained at school or in any of the other education programs that they're part of is giving it back to girls in their community that haven't um, been able to access those programs. And so setting up homework clubs or passing that knowledge on. And we did a lot of work last year on our scholarship program and what was working, what was not. And one of the big things that came back from the community elders, and this is in a very patriarchal society, very traditional, and that a lot of the elders themselves were saying they're setting up their own homework clubs for those girls or pooling community funds to be able to send more girls to school. And that's showing, yeah, it's really amazing. And that's huge change. I mean, we know this is a generational change that we're looking at, yeah. but it's these things that are happening right now. Well, it's like what you said about like the giant ship or, you know, turning. Um, it's very hard to see it turning. And actually Obama talked a lot about, um, you know, the turning ship uh, metaphor for how, he, you know, he was trying to correct the the economy, mm-hmm. but just no one could see it happening because when yeah. it's a big ship, it takes time to turn. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, you're actually seeing those ripples away from the mm-hmm. ship and the, the turning motion happening. It's very exciting. It's really exciting. Yeah. And things like girls themselves, you know, with our sexual reproductive health mm-hmm. and rights um, element to our programming and these sort of things we put through all of our programs. But we do that with the girls themselves, but also with the community members, because girls don't just fall pregnant. They fall pregnant because there's somebody else involved. And sometimes it's consensual, sometimes it's not. And it's important that the men in the community know the rights of girls and what consent means and, you know, everything that goes along with that. And but what we have seen in um, and be coming out in our report in a couple of months mm-hmm. is that girls are really taking um, control over their own bodies, but also talking about that with their partners and their families. And coming from the girls themselves and these young women, they're saying that they are actually really standing up for themselves more because they have the knowledge to be able to do so. And in some areas in which we work, we've seen a real reduction in teenage pregnancy. Um, so you're starting to see outcomes. I mean, it's a nice segue. My, my next question was going to be, how is it all going? It's yeah. <laughs> a very broad question. So tackle that how you may. But, you know, are you seeing, how are you seeing the ship change direction? Yeah, we're seeing, well, you know, those kind of, that impact is really amazing. Um, so we're seeing this amazing impact. And, and I think it's very much because of this girl-led approach that we very much view it as, we are opening up the door for these girls. They're walking through. We're just making sure it doesn't hit them on the way through. But it's up to them to decide what to do with it. If they want to follow a traditional path like their mother or mothers before them, that's fine. That's their choice. But it doesn't have to be their choice if they don't want it to be. And it's those kind of opportunities that girls are saying have kind of filled them with hope. And that, I think, shows the enormous impact that we're having the, I mean, the challenge for us is that we're a small organization sure. and we don't have funds that last beyond a year. And so it's very intensive to look at how we can create that sustainability in our funding because we make those commitments to the girls and especially girls that are on um, more longer term projects with us that we, we make a commitment to them that we will support them through their entire school journey. Um, but we don't have that commitment from a lot of our donors here we've got some amazingly passionate businesses and individuals who do regularly you know monthly or yearly give to us so i was going to actually ask about that so where does the funding come from for something like this so do it in address that campaign mm-hmm. is a big <coughs> sorry is a big part of our fundraising um and it's and it's so visual as well it's a real kind of awareness raiser of girls education which is which is brilliant so that's a big one um a really passionate and committed community. So a lot of businesses support us, um, a lot of small businesses. And to me, any business that gives up a portion of their profit um, to support a cause they're passionate about just, you know, just amazes me and fills me with pride at our community um, and and gratitude really. But we, you know, and regular givers as well who commit to give monthly. And then grants and, you know, trusts and foundations. It's not an area that we're huge in, but Mm. we do have a couple of bigger foundations that support us, but it's a lot of small amounts of money. And that's also makes it hard to, you know, trickle think, you know, that kind of having to just tack on tack on tack rather than having that stable flow. It is. I mean, on, on the positive side, it means that we're really careful with our money and we, you know, we've 
We make sure we're reviewing where we're spending it. We're very conscious of where our money is going to make sure that we are spending, you know, we're spending money on our staff because we need good staff to be able to do good work. And we're spending money on our programs, the, you know, as much money as we possibly can on our programs, but everything else, we analyze everything. Is there government sure. funding? We don't have government funding. Um, the Australian government, Uganda and Sierra Leone aren't um, priorities for the Australian government. We haven't tried to get um, government funding uh, because of this. Sure. Um, but, you know, something in the future to look into because we also would love to be bigger. And, you know, we're still early in our, um, you know, we're 10 years old this year, which is amazing. And we've been able to do amazing work in Sierra Leone and Uganda. But there is that what next for us and how we can expand our impact, knowing that we've got these remarkable programs and we've got a real expertise that we've built over that time, particularly on the unique challenges that adolescent girls face in countries similar to Uganda and um, in countries uh, of Sierra Leone and Uganda, but there are other countries like that. So how so is can that what's we next? Let, let me put your own uh, foreshadowed question to you. What is next? Huh, look, well, you know, we're working on that. Um, <laughs> it is, you know, one of the things that we think about is there are other organizations that are working in other countries and maybe we can support them. You know, we aren't a traditional not-for-profit that sets up a country office and, you know, establishes our own base. We are a collaborative organization. So how can we collaborate and maybe add our expertise to an organization that's already working in a particular area? Well, I think that's that's wonderful and probably music to a lot of listeners' ears. Yeah, we, you know, we've... We've got, we've got what makes us um, good at what we do, but other organisations have other elements to what they do and we can all learn from each other. How, how could you not want to collaborate with an organisation whose value is positivity? Yeah, and collaboration. We've really pulled out. <laughs> you might as well tell me what the other values are just so I know. Well, transparency. Yep. So we've got transparency, positivity, collaboration, Always learning, which is why we do the... That's two words. Is that allowed to be a value? That is. Challenging the status quo (laughs) is another one. And a lot of what comes under challenging the status quo is um, making these unusual partnerships and knowing that we are a development organization, but we can partner with many different people for a common cause. Um, And the last one is transformative, which is what we believe education is. Wow. I'm blown away. I have to, I have to take some time to think about those values. <laughs> <laughs> Shifting to you for a little bit. Um, it sounds to me like this is the kind of the role where you could just be working constantly if you weren't careful. How do you manage your, yourself and make sure that you come to your work each day as best as you can be and healthy and in harmony? It's hard. I, I mean, definitely, uh, hands up, I failed at that for the first easy six months of the role. And I mentioned before, you know, staff recruitment, we moved offices, there was, you know, just being new in any role, you know, there's a, there's a learning curve and I worked nights. I worked, you know, you know, way too many hours. Um, but for me, that was kind of a, a reflection on that sort of first six to eight months of, okay, that's fine, but that's, sorry, that's not sustainable. That definitely, I will just burn out. So I make a really conscious effort. It helps that I have an almost three-year-old who knows that I work at One Girl, uh, can look at the logo and, you know, say One Girl, but really life That's revolves around her. Really cute. Yeah, she, <laughs> she's good. She knows the name what, of all the a, team. What a role model she's got in you as well. <laughs> well, oh she's um, pretty special. But she, um, yeah, it's pretty nice actually. I was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? She's like, yeah, CEO. I was like, yes. <laughs> Mission accomplished. I know, job here is done. You're on your own. Um, but she, but you know, like the world revolves around her, you know, according to her. So it's, you know, it's important to me that I'm I'm there for her. And I have a partner who also, you know, has a, has a job that's flexible as well. So we organize our time that I'm with her in the morning and do drop off and he's able to do pick up, which means that, you know, I've got that little bit of time in the evening, but I still want to get home to see her in, you know, before she goes to bed. And so that's actually really nice for me to kind of have that because Mm. I need to leave work um, because there's always more that you can do. I look at it in like, you know, when you've got a suitcase, you're going on holiday and you'll just pack whatever fits in that suitcase. If you had a smaller suitcase, you'd 
you'd pack, you know, you wouldn't pack as much. If you have a bigger one, you just keep throwing stuff in. And I feel that work is a bit like that. You can just keep throwing things into that suitcase, but you're never going to finish everything you have to do. And it's just making that, you know what, today, that's enough. I'll pick this back up tomorrow. And I mean, I'm a big, the, the beauty about being in my position as CEO, and especially for a small team, is that I can really set direction around culture and ways of working and, and work practices. And I need flexible work hours because I have a child and I, I want to participate in her life. But my, you know, I'm the only one at my office who has a child, but they all have things in their life that requires, you know, them to do stuff outside of work I or leave it, at time. Um, like this is just a, a purely abstract comment, but isn't it interesting how like uh, having a child is like a good reason why you need work-life balance but other things aren't as much or they're not seen as, as much of a kind of like priority to have that escape time? Yeah, it is. Um, it, I think it definitely is mm. and that's something that, I mean, I've, I really push this because it's important to me but it's something that for me is important for the whole organisation so everybody can have that work-life balance. Yeah. And so that's something that we try to do is have really progressive policies. And again, I'm, you know, say I'm lucky a bit. I'm lucky in that I got to, you know, I got to really lead on the development of these policies. And so making sure we've got flexible work hours and other flexible work policies, like, you know, can have condensed, you know, work a nine day week, but, you know, condensed 10 days over nine day fortnight, sorry. But, you know, have all of these things so it can fit into everybody's life, um, which is to me, it's really important to be able to foster a happy workforce because that's when people are going to give their mo- their best oh, that's to the everything. organization. I think people would take flexibility any day over a salary increase if they're going to be honest about it. I mean, everyone wants to get paid, but when you're doing uh, meaningful work, uh, flexibility is key. Yeah. yeah. So, but I mean, coming back to your question, it sort of works for me in that, um, and I, this year I drop down to work. Um, so I have every second Wednesday off and my partner has the alternate Wednesday off. And so it's nice to have that day with my daughter to be able to kind of have that day, just her and I, and the first couple of, you know, days that I did that, it's like on my phone, checking in and I get to the end of the day and you're like, well, I haven't been a good mum or a good, you know, <laughs> member of the team because yeah. nobody at work, they didn't need me. They didn't want me butting in every, you know, every message that came yeah. up on the work messaging system. So, you know, it was that, again, that realisation that, you know what, I can do this tomorrow and if somebody needs me urgently, they know they can call me. Yeah. Um, but I feel like you know, very often we put these things on ourselves oh, rather sure. than have that, you know, for outward sure. pressure. Um, I was going to ask you, you know, one of your values is always learning. Did I get that right? It's you did, a- yes. So how are you always learning? Oh, my God, I'm learning every day. It's, you know, it's I I manage program, a program team, a communications team, and a fundraising team, and there's different skill sets. Let me shape it a little bit well. more and say, how are you, I suppose, learning new things? Like, do you, ever, do you listen to podcasts? Do you read uh, yeah. certain new sites? What are you into to sort of like get that creative um, external stimulation? So I, I know you're not really supposed to do this, but I ride my bike to and from work every day and I listen to podcasts awesome. while I ride my bike. Right. I'm along the Merry yeah. Creek Trail, yeah. so not <laughs> feel like it's all right. Yeah. Um, but that's great for me. I um, I listen to kind of a wide range of podcasts, anything from, you know, Chat 10 Looks 3 with Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb. So I, you know, get my books and movies and just general chat because they're wonderful people. And, you know, I would, I'd, I'd love to be on their podcast. <laughs> Man, Maybe they listen to this. Who knows? You, know, you never know. Who knows? But, um, like ultimate goals, but they, uh, but then also, um, Harvard Business Review has a HBR ideas cast, yeah. which is, which is really great because you get this insight from both, you know, researchers and academics, but also from CEOs and business leaders. And they have a women in work, um, version now that they've had for a couple of seasons, which is more focused on specific issues for women. Um, so that's good from a biz, like a more of a, a personal learning um, and also quite relevant a lot of the time for what I do. Um, there's this wonderful podcast that I've come on to in the last couple of months called Mothers of Invention. Cool. And it's um, uh, Mary Robinson, who was the former – Mary Robinson? Am I saying that right? She was the former um, president of Ireland. 
and uh, Maeve, I can't remember what her last name is, but she's an Irish comedian. And they do this, So, and they're like, I think in the first episode, Maeve was saying she was nine when Mary Robinson was the leader of the country. <laughs> so, you know, huge age difference. But they do this podcast on climate change and they interview women all around the world who are leading in this fight against climate change from, a, you know, from a grassroots all the way up to a political lobbying or whatever it is. And it's just amazing to hear those different stories um, and, and from also that something that's so relevant now on what's everybody, you know, that, that conversation around climate change. So I'm quite spread out, I guess, in what I listen to. I think it's the way to do it. And I, I think it's amazing how um, how much like latent awesome knowledge there is through podcasts. Like I subscribe to about 60 and I just cherry pick off the ones each week that I think look most interesting. Mm. What a delight to be able to have that curated um, intelligence from around the world just sort of flowing it to is. your phone. My, I, I think it's the thing that caused me most stress is there's too many. <laughs> <It's> too <much. laughs> Where's all the time to go? Yeah. No, it's, yeah, um, it's such a privilege. Speaking of time, we should wrap up. Uh, tell our audience where can they learn more about your wonderful work and connect with you online. Yeah, so if you want to know more about One Girl, go to onegirl.org.au. Um, you can see all about our work. You can sign up to receive our emails. Um, you can look at how you can donate or fundraise, for example, through Do It In Address. If you want to learn more about me, I'm not the best on social media, but go to my um, Instagram uh, at sarah.j.island mm-hmm. and Twitter S-A-R-E-J-Island 1. Awesome. Um, And is there an email or is there a best LinkedIn? Yeah, so you can go to my LinkedIn. um, I don't know what my handle, so you can just Google search me on LinkedIn. You would just be Sarah Island. I think I I found you earlier. Yeah. um, Yeah. Otherwise, you know, I'm definitely always open to be emailed si at onegirl.org.au. We very much love to hear from anybody who wants to connect with us or just has a question about girls' education or wants to know more about what we do or interrogate (laughs) anything that we do. So please, definitely, I love to get in contact with people who are interested. Okay, you heard the call. Let's flood the inbox. (laughs) Release the hounds. (laughs) I shall then be having to change my email. No, just kidding. Thank you so much for coming on tonight. Yeah, it's been a privilege. Thank you so much. It's lovely. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player. Why not share the podcast with a friend? You could also leave us a five-star review in your podcast player. You may also want to join us for one of our regular live podcasts or to become a show sponsor. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook.